You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. We're in a series called Restore to Me. And if we haven't met yet, my name is Drew Humphrey, and I have the privilege of serving here as the college pastor, and I love being a part of this church family and being a part of it with you. And so we're going to continue in that series this morning, and we've been asking these questions as we look to the Word. What needs to be restored in your life? What's broken that needs to be mended? And where do you need healing? You know, as I look across a room like this in a church family of this size, I've been praying some things and wondering some things. Maybe someone in this room today feels anxiety, a deep sense of anxiety, this oppressive anxiousness, and you just need a, a heavenly peace. Maybe there's someone in this house today who's, whose life is, is just lost control. They're just spinning out of control and, and you're just begging God for stability. Or maybe you have sunk to the lowest place of impurity of your entire life. You've never been lower, you've never felt dirtier, and you just desire to be clean. Or lastly, maybe there are some marriages in this room that these spouses, maybe you, you act more like roommates than you do like a married couple. And you walk into this place and you just wonder, Lord, will I be restored? How can I go back to the start? How can I reset? And these things, we carry them with us. And so we've been talking over the last few weeks about some things. And behind me is sort of a one-sentence recap of, of what we've been doing. The first week we talked about that restoration begins with brokenness over our flaws in light of the holiness of God. Restoration always begins with brokenness. We cannot skip over the fact that we must be broken with our sin, broken with ourself, the place that we have taken our life to. The second one is that we must grieve over our sin and then move forward in his grace, for his grace flows to repentance. We talked about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, and that godly sorrow re- produces repentance. It produces change. It produces something different in our life when we grieve in a godly way through his grace as we move forward. And then last week, we heard this message about retaining restoration by believing in and growing in the truth that Christ is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. The power of God is in you. What allow Jesus to to crucify the flesh and resurrect from the dead is also in you and me. And so Christ in us is what we have seen last week. And and I want you to remember that phrase, Christ in you, especially because there's this passage we're going to be in today. We're going to be in Romans chapter six today. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Romans chapter six, and we're going to be right there starting in verse one. But as I look at the screen right now, the three things that are on the screen, there's a temptation in my life to take advantage of this kind of relationship. To take advantage of, of this kind of, of, of opportunity that God has given us to be restored. That even in my brokenness, even in my sin, even when I mess up, I might be able to experience grace. What, what an opportunity to take advantage of that. The temptation that exists there. And Paul sees this in Romans chapter 6. So let's pick this up right here in verse 1. Just reading the first couple of verses together as we begin. I'll be in the NIV today. It's on the screen behind me. Romans 6 verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? 
He's setting up what I just said. I mean, why don't we just keep, can we just keep sinning if grace will always be there? If I can always grieve my sin, if I can be broken, if Christ is in me, can I not just continue to sin and, and then I'll receive more grace, I'll receive more mercy and I'll, I'll have this intimate relationship with God whenever I want access, cheat code, get out of jail, free card, whatever you want to call it. And then in verse two, he says, by no means, we are those who have died to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? The NIV and the ESV, they say by no means, but there's another translation that says it this way. May it never be. May it never be this way. And and, and we want to say that over our church family, but I want to say that to myself. I hope you say this in your heart that may it never be that I take advantage of a God who wants to restore me to him. May it never be that I want to do that. And so how can that be? How can it never be? Why may it never be? These are the questions. Lord, how how can it be that I can say that and I can say it in confidence, which leads us to this fourth week in this series. Here's the fourth week that we'll talk about is you enact restoration when you know that your life is in Christ. You enact restoration when you know that your life is in Christ. Especially if you notice the, the end of the phrase in number three and the end of the phrase in number four. Last week we talked about that Christ is in you, but this week we're going to talk about that we are in Christ. The Bible talks a lot about both of these things. It says that to be restored to God, Christ must be in me and I must be in him. But did you know that the Bible talks about, in the New Testament, there are five examples of the Bible talking about Christ being in you. And you know, in in the church that, that I grew up in, and it was a lot like Highland, and we talked a lot about asking Jesus into your heart. I want to ask Jesus into my life, into my heart. And that's a very biblical idea. There's five examples of that in the New Testament. But did you know that there are 164 examples of us being commanded to live in Christ? Not just to have Christ in us, but for us to be in him. And so restoration can't simply be about him being in us, but it has to be about what does it look like for me to know and live like my life is in Christ. And so this question is not only does Jesus live in you, but the obvious next question is where do you live? Where do you live? Do you live in Christ or, or do you live in sin? This is what verse two sets up. He says, how can I live in sin any longer if I have been reconciled to Christ? How can I take advantage of this anymore if I have been restored to Christ? How can I live in this place of sin? And so this choice is set up for us. Will I live in sin? Will I live for God? Will I live in sin or will I live in Christ? I don't have to spend a lot of time here. We know this tension. We know it in a macro sense, how it affects everything about the brokenness of our society, of of humankind, but also the the individual micro moments where we say, will I go with God or will I go the other way? Will I go with sin or will I go with God? And, and if we had been doing this series on the book of Romans, last week we would have been in Romans chapter five. And if you have your Bible, you can just look right to that preceding section right there where it talks about this tension between life in Adam, in sin, and life in Christ and in grace. And so there's this, in verse 18 is a good summary. It's on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bibles open there. But it says this, that consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, to stop there, he's saying just as Adam's sin was the consequence, that, that event had a consequence of all of us experiencing brokenness. Just as one act brought us brokenness, 
So one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. So what Christ did brought us life and we can live in him and he can bring us restoration when we are in him. And so life in Adam or life in Christ, if you live in Adam, you'll experience death. But if you live in Christ, you'll experience life. If you live in Adam, you will live in sin. And if you live in Christ, you will experience grace. If you live in Adam in your former ways, you will live broken. But if you live in the new way with Christ, you will live restored. And so back to chapter six, verse two, Paul, remember, he said, by no means will we take advantage of this. He says, we are those who have died to sin. So how could we live in sin any longer? And that phrase, we are those is an important one. If you're taking notes or if you're underlining in your Bible, circle that or underline we are, because it's a perfect phrase that expresses confidence in an identity. This phrase, we are expresses confidence in who not just I am, but who we are. And it reminds me of on December the 10th, 2011, I was a junior at Baylor University and we had a very good quarterback by the name of Robert Griffin III. Some of you guys remember this guy? Yes, we got some fans. And I know that like we've been having some good success in football lately, you know, but at that time it was like, you know, we weren't going to bowl games. We weren't winning all these, you know, all these different things. We were like, if we were tied at halftime with Texas, like the coach was, was a genius, you know, it was like, this is where we're going. It was a dark time in Baylor football and RG3 is sitting on the stage and he's about to, we're about to find out if he is going to win the Heisman. And me and my friends said, we're going to go up to the the sub at Baylor and we're going to sit there with all of our friends and the sub is packed. I mean, shoulder to shoulder all the way through. I'm in the sub den there where common grounds is now kind of on the male side. I could walk you right to where I was seated with thousands, felt like thousands of students in that room. Right. And, and we're watching the TVs and they're about to announce who it was. And the moment that they said, Robert, the entire place just exploded in just excitement and people are just jumping and jumping and screaming and RG three, RG three, what felt like for minutes and hours of just screaming and chanting until finally RG3 stood up at the platform and he had this incredible speech and it was just this rallying victory speech. And he said, he finished it by saying this, no pressure, no diamonds, the hotter, the heat, the harder, the steel. Then he said this, we are Baylor, Baylor. We are and Baylor, we will always be. And when he said, we are Baylor, I was hyped. The whole place exploded again. I was like, I could run through a brick wall of every Longhorn Aggie TCU fan I've ever seen right now. It was awesome. It was so cool. We were nobodies. And now we had this guy saying this thing. And I'm telling you, it was a victory. It was a pump-up speech. And this is what Paul is saying. He's giving us a victory speech. He's giving us a pump-up speech to say that we are dead to sin. Do you believe it? We are actually dead to sin and we no longer have to live in Christ anymore. We are now in Christ. We are now restored. So I must know this about myself. I must know this about myself because knowing this about my identity will lead me to being restored. Again, if you're taking notes or if you're just mentally remembering something today, I hope you remember the word know, K-N-O-W. So a good question for us to ask is this, do I really know that this is true about me? Do I live this way? Have I adopted this kind of identity? Have I lived out this kind of lifestyle, one in which I know I am dead to sin and I know I am alive in Christ? Because knowing is so important because when we know something, it's no longer a question. It's no longer a debate. It's something that is settled. It's something that we know. And how I live as a Christian is determined by what I know as a Christian. 
How I live as a Christian is determined by what I know as a Christian. So therefore, what I do and what I don't do is always determined by what I do and I don't know. And so we must know this about ourselves because this is why we must keep learning. This is why we must keep knowing. It's why we should continue going to the word in our own personal time. It's why we should be in Bible studies and listen to sermons and talk about it and consider it and apply it because the more that we know, the the better we will live and we will live rightly with God and we will be restored. And here's the truth is that Satan's goal in your life is to keep you ignorant because if he can keep you ignorant, he'll keep you ineffective. So, so Satan wants you not to know these things because if you misunderstand what is true about yourself, that you are dead to sin, then you won't live as if you're dead to sin. And you will live ignorant and you will live ineffective. And so we must know that this is true about us. And so for this reason, in Romans chapter six, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to be informed. I don't want you to not know. I want you to know. And so he gives us three no's, K-N-O-W-S, three no's to inform our identity and to teach us how to live in Christ. So let's see these three no's together. The first no is this. We must know that we have died and resurrected in Christ. Look back to the passage with me. We're going to pick it up in verse three as we see our first no. Verse three, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We, therefore, were, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We must know that we have died and resurrected in Christ. And Paul uses this incredible illustration of baptism here. And here's why he uses baptism. He uses baptism because baptism is a public declaration. It's a public ID card. It's my lanyard with my ID badge on it, my name tag that says, I am a Christian. Not just something that happens in my heart, not just something that happened in my bedroom when I was praying or at the altar alone with God, but baptism is something public. And so Paul says right here, don't you know that if you were baptized into Christ, publicly saying, wearing your ID badge, I am a Christian, that you also were publicly baptized. You were publicly declaring that you are with him in death, that your old self is gone. Not just that you're with him, not just that you're in him, but that you publicly are different. You publicly are dead. Your old self is dead. And and it's this beautiful symbolism with baptism because when someone goes into the water, it's the symbolism of their old self going into the grave. And when they go under the water, the real water, when they're really there, like think about the water completely submerges someone. I mean, every eyelash and, and, you know, wrinkle on your face and armpit and in between your toes, everything is submerged in water. Not a single part of you is dry, but it's wet. And in the same way, when we go into death with Christ, we are submerged and completely covered by the living water of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we should hold back. There's nothing that we should hold out of the water, but we should stay in it. We should drown it. We should say, it's dead. I'm not gonna hold anything back. And so there's this question, is our whole old self covered? Is our whole entire old self dead? Or are we trying to see some restoration in our life, but we have some parts of us that are the same as before we knew Christ? And we haven't truly fully killed them off. We must completely kill off our old self if we want to experience full restoration. And so why is this death so important? Verse four, it says this, the death is important in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, you too may have new life. 
in order that we have died in order that we can live resurrected and restored. There is a particular order to what happens in our faith. We must know the particular order so that we can experience it. First comes death and then comes resurrection. In order for a resurrection to occur, there must be a death. In order for a resurrection to occur, there must be a death. Let me put it this way. We cannot be resurrected if we haven't died yet. We cannot be restored if there's something in us that has not died with Christ, that is not publicly identified as dead, our old self being dead. And so there might be some in here today who are desperate for restoration. You are desperate for new life and resurrection in your life. But, but have you put your old self, your old ways fully to death that you might experience in order that you might see resurrection and resurrection? Or are you only hoping for a resurrection without a death? The first thing we must know is that we have died and resurrected in Christ. The second thing, we must know that we are free from sin in Christ. We must know that we are free from sin in Christ. Look back to the text with me in verse five. Here's the second no that we're gonna see from Paul. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, then we certainly will also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know, there's number two, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. This is the word of God, verse seven, because anyone who has died with Christ, in Christ, has been set free from sin. But let me tell you something, Satan, one of his favorite strategies against you and me is lying. He loves this so much that Jesus said this in John chapter eight. He said that Satan, he gave him a nickname. He said, Satan is the father of lies. And he went so far to say that actually his native language, his native tongue is lying. And what Satan, one of his favorite lies to you and me, you know what it is, is that you cannot overcome this sin. It will never fully leave your life. This brokenness, this distance that you experience in your marriage, this anxiety, this unsettledness, whatever impurity is in your life, you will never overcome this. He, he just speaks it into our life and, and he loves to lie to us because remember, if Satan can keep us ignorant, then he will keep us ineffective. And so he lies to us and we believe it and we go years and years and years without victory, without freedom. And so we must really know this truth that we really are set free from sin. It reminds me of a, of a story back from World War II. In December of 1944, over on the Pacific side of the war, there was, uh, the war was coming to an end. It was in the final year of the, of the war, and they sent uh, a Japanese soldier, they sent him to a small island of the Philippines, and his name is Hiro Onoda. And Hiro Onoda was, uh, again, he just came straight to this little island to fight on the beach and the allies and the Americans were just overrunning this beach and Hiro and a few of his friends, they went into the jungle to continue fighting till the death as the Japanese did. They would, they would never surrender. They would fight to the death. And so he went into the jungle and began to fight in guerrilla warfare, hiding and, and just you know trying to sneak up on people and do all those things that they did. And he stayed there for 29 more years fighting in World War II. 
29 more years. It would be nine months later in August of 1945 that the Pacific War would end. But Hero and this few of his friends, they continued fighting for 29 more years because they knew that they would, their people would never surrender. And so no matter what they heard about, no matter what they saw, they would continue to fight. And so the local government, they would fight them. They would try to fight anyone who they came in contact with because they were in the mindset that they are still in a war. They are still in a battle. And it wasn't until March of 1979, excuse me, 1974, March of 1974, that they finally found Hero's commanding officer in Japan on a book tour, traveling and being retired. And they sent him from Japan down to this little tiny island into the jungle to find Hero so that his commanding officer could relieve him of duty. And he walked out of the jungle free from the war that he'd been fighting for 29 years. And I wonder how many people in this room have been fighting a war that's been dead for much longer than 29 years. Who've been fighting a sin, who have been believing lies that you could never overcome something. And maybe you're not even 29 years old yet, but you're on a path, on a track, on a trajectory of a lifetime of fighting something that verse seven says you are, you are finished with. It's over. You are free. Sin is dead in your life. You can be restored. You don't have to, to lose to sin anymore. And like hero, you continue to fight in a battle that, that is over. Satan says that you aren't free and that you can't overcome sin. But Jesus' blood, it speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus speaks a word of truth. The blood of Jesus speaks a word of freedom. It speaks a word that says you can walk away from sin. You are free to stop the cycles of brokenness in Christ and experience restoration fully in your life because anyone who has died in Christ has been set free from sin. And the third and final no from Paul is this. We must know that we, are, that we forever live in Christ. We must know that we forever live in Christ. Not just that we've died or that we resurrected, not just that we are free from sin, but that we now live with him and that we forever live with him. Look to verse eight with me as we see this third and final no. Now, if we died with Christ, then we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. And the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So both now in the present sense and in the eternal sense, we can live with Jesus and we can live in Jesus. There's two types of living that Paul wants us to know about here. The first type of living is eternal life. He wants us to know about an eternal life. Verse nine says that Christ will never die again and those who are in him will therefore never die. They will live again. Even after this earthly death, they will live with him. When someone dies here, there, there's a heaviness, there's a loss, there's a sadness. I think about the events of just seven days ago in California with the helicopter crash that killed nine people, one of which is Kobe Bryant and his daughter. From the moment that news hit uh, around noon last week, uh, just every moment, I feel like there have been conversations about it. Not a day passed this week that I didn't have a conversation with someone or didn't see something about it uh, on the TV screen or, or read an article about it because there's a heaviness to the loss. Maybe there's someone in your life personally Maybe there's someone who has died recently and there's an emptiness. Maybe it's not even recently. Maybe it's so heavy that decades later, the heaviness and the sadness are still there. But Paul wants us to know 
that in Christ there is restoration to all things that are broken. There is even restoration to the most ultimate broken thing, which is death. The thing that will break all of us one day unless Christ returns before then. All of us will be broken by death, but we will not be broken if we are in Christ, for we will live again just as Christ lives again. There is an eternal hope. There is an eternal life. And for, so then therefore, anyone you know who has died, and for our own future death, those of us in this room, we can know that we will live in Christ after we die if we are in him. And what's interesting is that usually you can't know things in the future. Usually you can't know what is going to happen for certain in an event or at a certain time or when something's going to happen. But this is something in the future that you can know and be confident in that, that you can know that you will be in Christ and that anyone who is in Christ will, will be with him after they die. That death, the brokenness of death here has been defeated and it's not over, but it's not just about the eternal life. It's also about the present life. There's a life to live with Jesus right now. There's a life not to just wait until we die to be with him, but to, to be used, to be resurrected, to live restored, to live on a mission, to live changed, to live for eternity. It's like Jesus's friend, Lazarus. If you remember this story, Jesus had a very close friend who passed away during his ministry. And I just want to quickly read this to you. It won't be on the screen, but, but it's in John chapter 11. Jesus is, is broken by the death of his friend. And so he goes to the tomb where his friend has been dead for four days. And it says this, that Jesus was once more deeply moved. The heaviness, the sadness was falling even on Jesus, the son of God, as he came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And Jesus said, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By this time, there was a bad odor for, for he has been there for four whole days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands, his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. We've heard that story before, but can you imagine someone you know that has died, has been dead for four days. You've been preparing services, been mourning, and then they rise from the dead by the power of God. What a powerful moment of resurrection that exists in our life, even through this old self being dead and a new life being resurrected. But my favorite part of the Lazarus story isn't even that part. It comes in the very beginning of chapter 12, right next to it, where it says this, that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. He's been doing his stuff. He's been doing ministry. The, the resurrection of Lazarus has happened and he has to keep going. And, and he comes to this Passover and says, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with Jesus. What a powerful little just passing sentence that Lazarus lived with Jesus. Will you live with Jesus? Will you, will you dine with him? Will you spend time with him? Will you listen to him? Will you be used by him? Because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die, they will live. And so your old self may die, but you can live restored to Jesus today. And your body may die, but, but you can live restored to Jesus in eternity if you live in him and with him. 
And so as we wrap up this passage with Paul in Romans chapter six, we've seen these three no's to strengthen our faith. There are these three things that we've seen. We, we must know that we died and resurrected in Christ. We must know that we are set free from sin in Christ. And we must know that we forever live in Christ. Paul wants us to know these things. Remember, because, because how I live as a Christian depends on what I know as a Christian. And so I must know these things so that I might live so that I might be informed and not ignorant. And so first we know, and then Paul, he's so smart. He gives us action plans. He gives us practical application. How do you do this? First we know, and then we act. First we know, and then we live. First we know, and then we do. And so Paul just wraps it up here all together in chapter six, verses 11 through 14, and gives us two actions for us. Let's look at them together as we wrap up this morning. In the same way, so he said, you know it, Now do this. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. What a statement. Just don't do it. Don't let sin reign. Don't let it, don't even obey its evil desires. Verse 13. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God and to those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. First we know and then we act. So this is the first action that we see is this, is that we should count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. That's the first action for you and me is to count myself. It doesn't mean to to count my age or to count how many few hairs I have left on my head. It, It talks about counting or considering. Another translation says to reckon yourself. It doesn't mean reckon this word like a country boy. You know, I reckon we should go get some dinner soon. It's not a guess. It's not a suppose. He's saying to take it, to see it, to believe it. The word reckon means to take account for it. To actually take it and to put it in my account. That's what the word reckon means. And that's why the NIV uses this word count. That I would take something that I know and I would put it on me. That I would pick it up and I would live it out. That I would live dead to sin and alive to God. And this is really important. It doesn't say that we should feel it. It doesn't say that we even should understand it. It says that we should do it. And that we should count ourselves as dead to sin. Consider ourselves, reckon ourselves as dead to sin. And so I challenge all of us this week, act like you are dead to sin and restored to Christ and see what happens. If you are a believer and you have the Holy Spirit in your life, act like you are dead to sin and see what happens. See what God does through you. Here's the second and final thing that we see from Paul. He gives us in verse 13 that we should not only count yourself dead to sin, but we should offer up yourself. Each one of us has an opportunity this week to offer up ourselves to wickedness or to righteousness, to sin or to Christ. So for this series, I'll say it this way. This week, will I be an instrument in Christ or will I be an instrument in sin? Will I be an instrument who is restored or will I offer myself up as an instrument that is broken in this world? And again, this is a command from Paul, from the Lord through Paul. This is a command to offer ourselves up as an instrument that is restored and in Christ. 
And so as you notice, there's this shift in the tone of these last few verses. At first, it's telling us all about what we know and it's kind of informing us, but then there's a shift to ownership, to a calling for us to say, I'm not just gonna know about these things, but I'm gonna live these things. I'm gonna count myself as this. I'm gonna offer myself up to being restored and to being in Christ. Because ownership is handed to us not only to know something about ourselves, but to own it and to live it and to live in Christ. And so as verse 14 told us, Christian, sin is no longer your master. You can live under grace and you can live in Christ. And when you know that, and then you live that, then you enact restoration in your life in all different ways. And Jesus will come in and he will restore you fully and you will see newness of life and a new creation in you. Let's pray. And Jesus, your blood, it speaks a better word. Lord, how many lies have we heard this week from Satan? How many years have we believed the lies? Lord, your, your word You speak a better word. Your blood, it speaks a better word to us. Oh Lord, I pray that we would believe today that we are free from sin. We are totally free from sin. If there's anyone in this house who doesn't understand that, who doesn't believe that, I pray they would make their way to the front and they would find out, how can I be free from sin? I, like Hero in the Philippines jungle, I, I've been fighting a battle for decades that, that I, I just can't win. And it turns out I've already won in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that today they would experience freedom and newness of life. Lord, I pray that now that we know, God, that you would help us to live this out. That we wouldn't just be a bunch of Christians who gather and like good music and like each other and like your Bible so that we can know things and puff ourselves up, but that we would live differently. We'd live changed and that we would go out on mission to live with you, Jesus. Only in Christ can we experience this kind of restoration. And so I pray for the marriages. I pray for impurity. I pray for lives that are falling apart. I pray for people who have anxiety and depression and mental health issues. Lord, all of these things in Christ can be restored. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, today we walk in Christ, into restoration. Oh God, would you give us that kind of experience today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.